coming up on the Sark Fighter podcast. And I couldn't get out of bed. I mean, literally, I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't walk. There were 11 steps from the bed to the toilet. And I would fall over more than once. I broke a wrist. I broke ribs. The Sark Fighter brings you FSR patient advocate and writer Rebecca Stanfill, who has recently published in the Washington Post and Huffington Post. You know, I was saying to myself, I was saying to my family, I was saying to the world, you know, my health and my life are worth enough for me to, to do this. Rebecca's amazing perspectives coming up next here on the Sark Fighter podcast. This is the Sark Fighter podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Well, hello and welcome. This is episode 41 of the Sark Fighter podcast, brought to you in part by a grant from A-Tire Pharma. I do this podcast to offer my fellow Sark Fighters hope. The official Sark Fighter song is called Zombie by Mark Steyer and his band, the White Hot Lizards. You can hear Mark's story, the story behind his lyrics in episode 12. And just tell me if you listen to that song, if it doesn't kind of paint a picture of your life. I call this the Sark Fighter Podcast because I'm fighting Sark and so are you, whether you're a caregiver, a patient, a researcher. It's a place where we all can gather. People tell me they feel like they're all alone. They don't know anybody else who has sarcoidosis. They can't find treatment for sarcoidosis or maybe effective treatment or diagnosis. And I just want to let everybody know that there is a reason for hope. We talked to uh, fellow SARC patients. We've talked to the top researchers in the United States, especially the last couple of episodes, people from places like Yale and Stanford and Sarcoidosis UK. And, you know, really, the podcast has uh, has exceeded my own expectations in terms of its reach and the accessibility of the people who are really making a difference as all of us try to find a way to, to get through a life with sarcoidosis. And I just have to tell you that uh, we do release every other Monday. And as I'm speaking today, my trusty dog, my boxer, Dougal, is settled on uh, the chair that used to be my chair, but now it's it's his chair here in my office, and he's all curled up in the studio, and uh, Dougal just makes my life so much better. But then again, I am a, a huge pet person. Now today, it's all about a new perspective. My guest is an outstanding writer, and she has broken through to some big-time publications with her message about what it's like to live with sarcoidosis. The Delta variant, notwithstanding, when we talk about the COVID pandemic, we are emerging right now with about 70% of the U.S. population being vaccinated, give or take. And this is, uh, I'm speaking to you in early July of 2021. And that's that's the best information I have right now. Uh, so it looks like the pandemic will be ending at some point sometime soon unless the delta variant or some other variant comes along and people continue to get vaccinated but man that was a tough haul for rebecca stanfield who is a voice for everyone who's immunocompromised by sarcoidosis or perhaps maybe the treatments that we all take to keep it at bay to the point where she moved out of her home for eight months 
so she could self-quarantine from her husband and teenage son. And in the Washington Post, she wrote about that a little bit, and there was so much good information in both the Washington Post and the Huff Post, but I'm just going to read you an excerpt of what she shared with the world in the Washington Post. Rebecca writes, I hated being apart from them. I hated missing some of Andrew's final months at home before going to college. I hated not being able to hug them. I hated physically backing away from my son. I hated fearing for my life. But my years with sarcoidosis made all this feel more possible. I'd learned that romantic love and parental bonds can hold up to long stays in the hospital, and I knew a confined and boring year wouldn't kill me. I had the emotional musculature in place already. Now, if that's not somebody telling you how bad it is, but putting a a shine on it, a positive spin on it, all at the same time, I don't know what is. And there's just some fantastic writing and ideas being communicated in in just a couple of sentences there. And and that that is Rebecca. Um, She's a philosopher, all right? As a writer, she, she knows the value of an analogy. And she takes exception to my use and really the common use of the term Sark fighter or even Sark warrior, she thinks that using the language of war, words like battle, warrior, fighter, make it more difficult to deal with a chronic illness like sarcoidosis. And actually, of course, that's just the opposite of the way I feel. I named this podcast, the Sark Fighter Podcast. I open every time that I upload a new episode saying, because I'm fighting Sark and so are you, and we're all going to get through this and we're going to take it to this disease. And when I go for a long bike ride, because I've gotten through a training session, uh, weeks and weeks of training, and I get a big bike ride done. And not only do I enjoy the fact that I was out there and I was enjoying the ride, but you know what? I took one back from sarcoidosis, which is trying to take one from me. So for me, it's all about the battle. But Rebecca makes a great case for her approach. And I will tell you quickly that she, of course, has had an extremely difficult run with sarcoidosis uh, for, I I think, I want to say 16 years. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, it's 16 or 17 years, to the point that doctors actually predicted she would leave this life long ago. Uh, that she would not live to see her son grow up, and yet here she is, and actually for the last three years, she's she's actually kind of had things mostly under control. And all of this, all of this language and philosophy from a woman who at one point was competing to be on the U.S. Olympic team as a cyclist, and she was right there in the late 80s. And uh, Rebecca and I have so much to talk about, and all of it is coming up next here on the Sark Fighter Podcast. I feel like a zombie Just feeding at stumbling Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter Podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the Sarcoidosis Solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS, kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. 
Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter Podcast. Welcome back to the Sark Fighter Podcast. And joining me now is a fellow Sark Fighter, although she might disagree with that term, Rebecca Stanfull, who is a fellow advocate and works with FSR, but also uh, an excellent writer. And she's been writing about her struggle with sarcoidosis. Rebecca, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, John. So you've been fighting sarcoidosis for a long time. Let me put it this way. I know you object to the term fighting, and we're going to talk about that. You have been plagued with sarcoidosis for a long time. I have, yes. I have been living with sarcoidosis for 17 years. I was diagnosed in my early 30s. Um, I had just given birth to my son, who was three months old, um, when I was first diagnosed, that way back in 2004. So everything was going along swimmingly, and then what happened? Um, we were moving back to our, our home in Montana, and I developed, I'm sure a lot of people have the same story, I developed a nagging cough and bronchitis that wouldn't go away. <clears throat> so I ended up in the urgent care facility here where I live, um, and got a call on a Friday night when they were closing. Oh, we read your chest x-ray and it looks like you might have lymphoma. So call a uh, oncologist on Monday. It turned out that I had um, sarcoidosis, not lymphoma. And at the time I was incredibly relieved by that. And then over the next years of the disease progressed first to my heart where I have a, you know, an ICD implanted liver, bones, joints, skin, and most profoundly, um, neurological, and now some gastrointestinal involvement. So, so I think you, of the disease is sort of hopscotching around my body. And you have not been able to keep that in check? Well, for the past three years, I'm knocking on something wood here, I have been able to keep it in check. Um, before then, it was pretty much a horror show of, um, you know, having the illness affect one organ and switching drugs and then it breaking through or the, the medication's not working and then trying a different, stronger drug, progressing to doing high-dose cytoxin, which is a cancer drug, um, spending months in the hospital with uncontrolled pain and vertigo and episodes of blindness. And then my last hospitalization was the summer of 2018. And I don't know if medications finally kicked in or if the disease has quieted down. I mean, I still have symptoms. I still have to manage it, but it's profoundly better than it was. But before wow. then, no, it was 14 years of just sort of constant, constant going from one to the other. I want to pick through that a little bit. You said episodes of blindness. Can you tell me about that? Yes. Um, what would happen is I would, so in 2007, I, I had aseptic, meningitis. I didn't know it at the time. That was how the neurosarcoid presented itself. So it was just this unbelievable pain, like, you know, terrible pain. And then my vision would just blank out for periods of time, thankfully very short periods of time, but it was completely, completely terrifying. So I'd be laying in bed or I'd be getting up and just, um, so fortunately that has not been a part of my life for, for a while. Would that last for a minute or two minutes or hours or what? Was no, the... it would be minutes at minutes. the most. Okay. Yeah. 
Wow. And so that was sarcoidosis. Was it on an optic nerve or somewhere in your yes. brain that was blocking a signal or what was it? Um, the consensus was it was on the optic nerve as well as I believe it was cranial nerve number eight, if I'm remembering, which is the vestibular ocular, which is what controls your sense of balance. Wow. Wow. So, uh, you have had a, a tough run. And then the cytoxin, I went through a year of the cytoxin as well. That is no picnic at all. No, no. It's Did it work? To, you know, it, it's, it's, look, it's looking back, it is so hard to tell. I mean, at that point in my life, I think if the doctor had said, here's a bottle of Drano, it's going to allow you to be the kind of mother that you want to be. It's going to allow you to function more. I would have chugged the Drano. It, it's hard to tell some of those drugs, the side effects are so profound. I don't know about with you, but I was getting it every other week. So I would, I would get this dose and then I'd come home and I'd be, I'd be sick for five days, six days, seven days. I don't know. That said, you know, the neurologic symptoms have retreated somewhat and I'm more functional. So, as I'm sure so many of um, your people who listen to your podcast know, I mean, sometimes it's difficult to tell with this disease, um, with the medications. I don't, I don't know of many people who have been put on Remicade or have taken Celsept or Methotrexate or Rituxan or Thalidomide or uh, Actar, you know, who, who take it and say miraculously, oh, I'm cured, right? I just, I don't think that's, that's the typical course in my understanding. I could be wrong, but. Yeah. And well, you never know, you never know if you're cured or if you're just in a pleasant window before yes. the next episode. So you've been three years. Um, I'm going on two years without a flare up. And although I have, you know, permanent damage, it sounds like you have some permanent damage. Um, so you always feel like it's there, um, but it's much better than, than a flare. What are, you, what are you taking right now? Right now I'm taking Akthar, um, okay. 80. I'm taking Akthar. I'm still on 10 milligrams of prednisone. And I have low immunoglobulin, which allows me to get IVIG monthly. Um, I think my insurance company would fight it. But um, the doctor I see says that he thinks that the IVIG is very good in helping with all the nerve, the neuropathy issues that seem to be my main problem. So those three things. All right. I want to go back in your life a little bit. You were a national caliber athlete. Yes. When I was a teenager, I was, I was a bit of a biking phenom. Um, I was a track cyclist. We lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, and I have, you know, several national medals. I was at the Olympic Training Center for three times, and I was a contender for the 1988 Olympic team. Um, so, yeah, that's in my background. And then I picked the sport up again in one year when we lived in Montana and just had fun racing in a kind of low-key way. And it's been a real joy in the past few months. I somehow in the pandemic found a new bike, um, and it's been really just wonderful. I've been riding my bike around in a just a mellow, low-key way, rediscovering that joy I felt when I was 16 or 17, that sense of freedom and the wind in your hair. And um, so I've really been enjoy enjoying that. I, when I've talked to people who led a very active lifestyle, and let's face it, you if you live in Montana, you're not there 
to sit on the couch and watch television. Correct. <laughs> so, and then along comes sarcoidosis. And to me, it seems like such a limiting factor for people who really want to live that active lifestyle. Has, has, it, has it made like that cycling or that hiking or whatever you want to do in the outdoor, in the great outdoors and big sky countries, it made it that much more difficult for you? Oh, it was devastating. So I should also say that I gained 100 pounds on the prednisone, which I've since lost. I think being on the prednisone and being bedridden and having no pleasures left in life except eating. But, you know, when we moved to Montana, my husband and I, like our way of interacting together as a couple and as a family was to hike. So, you know, we did long hikes. You've been to Glacier National Park. We did backcountry hikes in Glacier into the Bob Marshall Wilderness. We live with hiking trails out our back door. Um, so after work, you know, we would meet for, you know, a run. I used to run up those trails, which is unbelievable to me now. We're blessed with lakes close to us, so lots of kayaking in the summer, cross-country skiing in the winter, and then suddenly that was just gone, um, and I couldn't get out of bed. I mean, literally, I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't walk. I counted. There were 11 steps from the bed to the toilet, and I would fall over more than once. I broke a wrist. I broke ribs, and so people would say, oh you know, why don't you go for pretty drives, you know, drive up to the top of the pass and, and, you know, look at the view and, and it's not the same. I mean, when you, when you participate in something that you love and it's this whole body experience and you're with the person that you love and you, you have those conversations when you're walking that you don't have just sitting around the house. Um, it was devastating. Um, and I still don't think we figured out, you know, a good way a second thing to do that was just as good as that for us. So it was hard on me. It was hard on my husband. It was hard on my son to lose that capacity. I believe it. So your son, I'm doing the math. Your son's got to be around 17 years old. He's 17. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And he likes to do the outdoor stuff. Now he does. And I, I feel like that's, you know, part of it was as he was growing up, it was just his dad taking him out. It, it pains me that I did not teach, get to teach my own son how to ride a bike or how to ski. I'm a much better skier than my husband. <laughs> um, so for a while, I think he was kind of your typical preteen glued to video games, but you know, now he's very active. He's a hiker. He's a rock climber. Um, so it all worked out. Yeah. Yeah, well, we went through similar thing. I have three sons, and it went. We went through that similar phase, um, so I'm not surprised. The um, so, what was when you said you were trying to walk from the bed to the bathroom and you would fall? At that point, which part of your body was failing due to sarcoidosis? It was all neurological. It was all the vertigo from the cranial nerves. Got it. So you couldn't. Could you not? feel your feet? Could you not guide your legs? I mean, what was, what was happening? It was like living on a, a ship at sea in a storm that was somehow spinning around. It was, it was the most profound dizziness I have ever felt. Um, and later, you know, I learned that I had neuropathy in the feet and probably I wasn't picking my feet up. 
but at the time it was just this dizziness, you know, that I couldn't control. It was dizziness. Wow. And so that, so that's what, what made you fall down. So it wasn't like your legs weren't strong enough to carry you. You just didn't have the balance. Right. Right. And at the time we lived in a house, we had to move because the house, it just didn't work. So the, you know, the bedroom that I slept in was on the second floor and any kind of family, you know, the, the kitchen, the eating area was down this flight of steep stairs and the vertigo got so bad. I, I would crawl down those stairs to have family dinner. I mean, I could not walk down the stairs safely. That is just amazing. But, but now you said you found a bike in the pandemic and you, you, you have the balance to get on a bicycle and ride. Yes. And right now I'm not having tremendous vertigo issues, um, which is great. I also picked up um, wild ice skating this last winter. So, you know, skating on some of our lakes um, with sort of the longer blade speed skates. It's kind of a, a cross between cross country skiing and skating. I picked that up this winter. So I feel really fortunate. What is that like? Heaven. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, you would like it, I think, if you like cycling. You have no resistance on ice. So you, you, it's a sense of flying um, because there's no resistance. But it takes a lot of, um, you know, VO2 max. You got to be able to breathe as if you were running, I would think. And um, no, you because have to have strong those... legs. Well, I think you have to have, you know, if you could, I think if you could walk, you could do it, especially if you've ever been on skates before, like hockey skates or figure skates. And with those longer blades, it really isn't a lot of uh, VO2 max. It's, you know, one push on your skate will send you meters down the, the ice. Huh. If and it's good ice. How do you get good, clean ice without snow on it and all that kind of stuff? Does that just happen naturally? Luck. If there's a cold snap before we get snow, um, or if there's a thaw and then it refreezes before snow. And then in a town near us um, in Butte, they actually have a, uh, an outdoor speed skating track that they clean. So I got to practice up there. So, Yeah, I think that's uh, an experience that, that most people, you just got to live far enough north to be able to do that. Look for videos on YouTube. I mean, it's pretty, I mean, they have an aerial video of some Montana skaters on wild ice that's uh, taken from a drone. It's, um, it's amazing, but it's definitely something you need all the safety equipment and you need to do it with people and you need to do it with people who know what they're doing. Right. Um, in terms of, you know, knowing the ice. Right. Let's talk about your writing a little bit. Um, so you are a graduate of Berkeley. Did you major yes. in English or what did you major in? No, I measured, majored in the, the tremendously employable profession of medieval women's intellectual history. Of so. course, those firms are always hiring. What it did in my uh, defense is it taught me, I think I got an education where I learned how to think and I also learned how to write. Um, looking back, I really wish I'd studied journalism because Berkeley had a great journalism program, but you can't tell a 20 year old anything as I'm sure, you know, if you have kids. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know what, I'm, I'm one of those people who think that you go to college to grow up and to learn how to think. Me and, too. And if you, and if you happen to 
you know, major in something where, where you can get a job in that area, so much the better. But I think that the major reason to go to college for four years is to learn how to think and to I totally get, a, agree. get a broad education and a little bit of knowledge about a lot of things. So yeah. Figure out how the world works. So that's my two cents. And uh, yeah. my wife and I disagree on that. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, well, she majored in accounting and she's an accountant, you know, it just worked for her. Yeah. Um, and she's very, very good at it. Uh, but anyway, so you started writing about sarcoidosis and you've been published in a couple of uh, big publications with some op-eds. Tell, tell us about the, the two most recent. The two most recent pieces, um, one was in the Washington Post. I've lost all sense of time. I think it was like a, a couple months ago. And then yeah. I think last month was in HuffPost. Yeah. And I read both of those. Um, and you are just so articulate when it comes to telling the sarcoidosis story. What made you think, I'm going to write about sarcoidosis and the Washington Post is going to publish it? Well, a little bit of background. So I was working as a writer and a journalist when I got sick. And then, um, of course, I lost one of the things I lost when the disease was very active in my brain was the ability to read text and to write. I still have issues reading a book. It's slowed down a lot for me, um, the process of reading. So I wasn't able to meet deadlines. Um, so I wasn't writing. But writing has always been since I was a kid. It's been my way to engage with my reality. It's a way to make sense of things. If I sit down and I want to write in my journal or I want to write something, it's how I, I process. So, oh gosh, I think it was 2008, I started a blog called Chronic Town, where I just wrote about the experience of having this illness and being, you know, a parent to a young child. Um, and that kind of led, people said, oh, this is so great, you should try to get it published. So I had a couple of personal essays published in High Country News, which is a magazine. It's about life in the West. Um, you know, and then people said, oh, you should turn it into a book, um, which didn't work as a process for me. And then my son, you know, is, is growing up and I feel like I, I missed a lot of time with him with illness and um, being sick so much and, and in the hospital. So I'd sort of decided a couple of years ago, I'm not going to worry about writing right now. I'm just going to focus on being a mom and, you know, being present in his life when he deigns to speak to me, you know, most of the time the door is closed. But when COVID hit, um, my doctor was very, very concerned. Um, and he said, you know, you're going to either need to keep your son completely locked in his bedroom and not interacting in the world, um, or you're going to have to live somewhere separately. And fortunately, we have the financial resources that I could live separately. So for eight months, I moved out of the family home and moved into an apartment across town. And suddenly I had a lot of time on my hands and writing was what I turned to. Um, and I, I picked it back up and I had so many feelings about COVID as someone who was immunocompromised, living in a state where people were burning masks, you know, down the street because they felt that was too much of an, an infringement to wear a mask to protect people like me. 
and I just, I just felt like I had to write. So all of these ideas started coming out and um, I sent some off to different places and I feel really fortunate the post took that. I need to back up because I know that you talked about this in uh, in one of your essays, but um, you were you were so afraid because you're immune compromised, immunocompromised because of the drugs and because of sarcoidosis. So you moved away from your family for eight months, basically yes. lived like a hermit. Well, I'd come home for dinner in the summer. We'd have dinner on the deck because that was outside. And I'd go for walks outside with my husband, Jay, and my son, Andrew. And then it got, it got difficult in the winter. So we bought these giant air filters and we would like, I would sit in the living room and like 10 feet away, they were at the table and we'd kind of shout at each other across the room. And I was very fortunate to get an early um, vaccine. I had got an extra dose. Um, so yeah, I did move out. And that, I mean, just the decision to do that, I, I'm trying to envision what it, how I would have approached that. I would have resisted that at all costs. I guess you just felt like that was the best path? I, yeah, and I think, I think part of it was watching my son struggle for those eight weeks, you know, when he was locked down, you know, struggling with, you know, anxiety and not seeing his friends and being depressed and not being able to go out. Um, you know, looking back, do I think we could have found a solution where we all stayed together? Yes. At the time it was so freaky. And I think I already had this instinct from all the time in the hospital that when I'm sick, I'm the one that goes away. Um, that we just sort of slotted into that. Um, but on the other hand, in a lot of ways, it was a very empowering time because, you know, I was saying to myself, I was saying to my family, I was saying to the world, you know, my health and my life are worth enough for me to, to do this. Okay. So, so, so you're by yourself, you have a lot of time on your hands and you start writing. And what thoughts are coming to you that are, are motivating you to sit down and begin this process? Well, I kind of became an amateur epidemiologist because I also had a lot of time reading to read everything about COVID and I love public health issues. Um, I think what first motivated me was rage. I mean, it was really this sense of there are other people like me who are either elderly or they're immunocompromised or they have some other risk factor. And there was a segment of society that just did not seem to care whether we lived or died. And I think that was sort of the first thing about, you know, writing about my experience about what is it like to have an illness and to be immunocompromised with this disease? Like we are not some, you know, small group of other, you know, we are, your families, your friends, your neighbors, um, your teachers. Um, so I think that was what kind of first got me writing. And then you're a journalist. I'm sure you know this, you know, once your brain gets going with ideas, then that builds on other ideas. And, um, and that's just the process for me. Yeah. So 
you put that out there so that people hopefully would get the message that, hey, there's a bunch of us out here and you should care about us and you need to be careful. Did, yes. did A, did that work or B, did it at least make you feel better that you got it out there? It felt a lot better to get it out there and especially to get it published in a national publication because there was that sense that yes, you know, as a writer, you know, you, you innately believe that you have something worth saying, but it's also great when you get that um, affirmation from someone saying, yeah, this is something worth other people reading. Um, and from both of the publications, the overwhelming response I got from kind of online comments was positive. Um, other people with sarcoidosis, especially in the Washington Post, writing just saying, thank you. Thank you for I've never read anything about sarcoidosis in a major newspaper. Thank you. Um, which I found really interesting. You know, just that notion. And it's something that I felt with the blog, even way back then, of just that aloneness with a rare disease. Um, so you had an epiphany and uh I want to talk about this because the name of this podcast is the Sark Fighter Podcast. And you and I both volunteer with the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research, and they are fond of calling all of us with sarcoidosis Sark Warriors. So we have the word warrior and we have the word fighter. And for me, it is a determination to fight back against what's restraining me. And you have come to terms with language that says it's not fighting. Tell me about that. This is by saying, <clears throat> I think we all have different thought processes for how we deal with everything in our life. And it, what I'm saying right now, I do not mean as a judgment against you or anyone who likes to use images of war thinking about illness. It's something that was very important to my thinking about illness as well for over a decade. So, you know, as I said, I got diagnosed when Andrew was three months old. And the first thought that came into my head was, I'm going to beat this. I'm going to fight this. I'm going to live to see my son grow up. And I had doctors who told me otherwise. You know, I had an electrophysiologist my son was nine, 10 months old, um, say, you know, oh, you could drop dead at any moment, he would say very casually. And uh, when Andrew was two or three, I had another doctor say, well, you're not going to live to see your son graduate from high school, but at least you know what you're going to die of. Like a lot of people don't have that. And he offered this to me as a sort of comfort. So for me, the stakes we're very high. The stakes are very high for all of us. Life is something we want to hold on to. And I think in our culture, when the stakes are high, we turn to the language of war, right? We have the war on drugs. We have the war on cancer. Lyndon Johnson had the war on poverty. And I think what war conveys is you're giving it everything that you've got. Um, and it's very important. And this is something that I, I thought this way too for a decade. You know, at the time I had a, a therapist, she was a little old lady who was a cancer survivor, um, you know, a former beatnik. And she would tell me when I would go in for my cytoxin, she would say, I want you to visualize every molecule of that chemo going into your body as a nuclear warhead that's going to 
you know, destroy the problem that's going on. This is a beatnik telling you this. Yeah, and a cancer mm. woman who lived through cancer. And all of this time, I'm fighting the disease, right? I'm tired, but I'm going to fight to get out of bed. I'm going to fight to be with my son. I'm going to fight to make it down the stairs to dinner. You know, I'm going to fight to watch a television show. What happens if you fight and you can't do it? How do you feel about yourself then? So one day I was getting cytoxin and my body reacted to it horribly. So I had to get huge doses of IV Benadryl. And I'm sitting there in my Benadryl haze watching the, the stuff drip into me slowly. And I'm thinking about what my therapist had said, you know, that this is like, it's war. I'm going to win this war. And I had this epiphany and I think this is especially true for a disease where it's your own immune system is a component. Like I am both the aggressor and I am the battlefield. So I'm dropping these nuclear warheads into my body and yet I am the field into which they land. And I just, that kind of put me on this path of, of thinking about how do we as individuals and how do we as a society think about illness? And this is clearly not something that's unique to sarcoidosis. You know, if you read most obituaries where someone has died of any kind of illness, cancer, uh, Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis, COVID, they'll say, you know, so-and-so fought valiantly and he lost his battle with blah. And I don't like the thought that you're a loser if an illness kills you. Um, so when I was in college, in one of my classes, we had to read Susan Sontag's book, Illness is a Metaphor. And it's a very famous book. It's kind of a philosophy of illness book. And so the writer had cancer and she got very frustrated with sort of the metaphors people use to talk about illness. And for me, it just stopped working to think about it in that way. I was just, I was down on myself. I was depressed. I felt like I was a loser. I felt like I wasn't trying hard enough. Even the way that the drug, you know, the, the, some of the doctors, if, if they give you a drug and it doesn't work, you fail the drug, right? I mean, that's the language that, that was getting used. And it just wasn't working for me. So... I don't know, for a while I was sort of casting around for, you know, how do we think about illnesses? And I still don't have a great answer, you know, how, how to envision an illness if you're not gonna use the language of war. But for me personally, I now think of myself as living with sarcoidosis. I don't believe that I'm ever going to get magically cured and this disease is going to just go away. Like, I think I will be living with symptoms. Um, I'll be very happy if that happens. Like, I'm not trying to be a downer and say it's, it's never going to happen. But for me, I feel like I need to just take every day that I have in front of me as a gift. You know, every day when I'm functional, every day when I'm able to do the things that I can, then I'm living with this illness. To a certain extent, I'm sharing my body with this disease. And for me, it has allowed me to get the rest that I need. It has allowed me to try to find some balance. I mean, before this, I was 
I mean, I'm sure we've all done this. I mean, I was this, you know, this was my pattern, you know, it'd be like, I'd feel okay one day. So I would do everything I could, every, everything I could, you know, and then I couldn't get out of bed for a week and I feel horrible about myself and I feel like a, you know, a loser. So for me, I've kind of been on this journey. I'm still thinking about it. I'm doing research now into like theories of metaphorical thinking. You know, why is it that we, we need metaphors? You know, what, what purpose do they serve? You know, to think about how do we as individuals living with a disease and how do we as a larger society want to view serious and chronic illnesses? Has it helped your mental health to adopt this approach that doesn't use the language of war? Tremendously. It has. Like I said, because I think, and I think this is part of it too, as a former athlete, as someone that was used to thinking of my body as a tool, as something that I could, I could push. Um, so suddenly to push and wind up in the hospital instead of pushing, you know, and winning this phase of the illness, it was profoundly depressing for me. So yeah, I have found a lot of relief in that notion that I, I live with sarcoidosis. I don't like sarcoidosis. Um, right now I'm living with sarcoidosis and I have to manage it. So I, I think of myself more as, as like a, a manager of a difficult, uh, you know, work crew, you know, some of who want to do their job and some of who want to run around and make granuloma in places I don't want it to, but I, I'm the manager, right? And I have to learn how to function as best I can in this body now. So when you get out on your bike or when you're doing the ice skating um don't you just feel a little bit like i just beat sarcoidosis i stole one from sarcoidosis no i feel i feel so lucky i feel so fortunate to whatever it is the drugs to the prayers that people have sent me from different religions to the randomness of the disease being in a, a, a process of, of less activity. I feel joy on the bike. I don't, if I feel anything related to the disease, sometimes I, I feel mm, not angry, but just that sense, like, you know, you know, 20 years ago, I could have like, you know, ridden up this pass, you know, and now I'm just out riding for an hour. But I really try to stay grounded in, you know, what can I do today? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what can I do today that's going to allow me to do something tomorrow? Right. So sure. I'd love to like go out and do intervals on my bike, you know, but then I'll be in bed for three days. Um, so what can I do today that will allow me to be present in my life tomorrow that will allow me to function the next day? Um, if that makes any sense. Sure. You know, and I've talked to some people who are um, on the podcast who are in that state right now where you have been at various times where um, for whatever reason, whether it's pulmonary, whether it's cardiac, whether it's neuro, um, their activities are extremely limited. So gardening for 15 minutes is, is a victory. I hear that. There I am using the language of winning and losing again. Um, but 
but I still sense that there's that determination. It's Definitely just, determination. But, but the journey is the destination and you're not stopping to smell the roses along the way. The roses may be the destination. Yeah. And it's been a, this has been, I mean, if, if anyone wants to go read, go read 4,000 blog entries. I mean, this has been something I've been working on the entire 17 years because I am a high achieving person in everything that I do. I'm very, you know, I'm very goal oriented. And so this notion that, okay, I'm going to work on an article today. I'm going to work until I'm tired. I'm not going to work until I finish it. You know, I'm going to work until I know I've reached what I can do. I'm going to do that 15 minutes of gardening, right? I'm not going to like do my whole yard. That has been a work in progress for me. And it remains a work in progress to try to stay, you know, in, in the day that I'm in, not in the past. I think all of us deal with a lot of trauma from past medical experiences. And I think we all have a lot of anxiety about the future. Even if you're doing better, I'm sure you feel that sense of when is that other shoe gonna drop again? And what am I gonna do when it drops? Um, and so trying not to live with that, but also be smart enough to have plans in place for when that happens, if that happens. So how do you, how do you balance that? The other shoe could drop any day. I got to go have some fun right now while I can. But at the same time thinking, I don't want to have too much fun because I don't want to cause the other shoe to drop. How do you, how do you find that balance? Work in progress. I mean, it's every day. It's something I think I'm negotiating. I'm figuring out. I mean, two weekends ago, my husband and I, I have not been on a vacation and we used to be avid travelers since the pandemic started. And he's been really busy with work. So we drove five hours to Sandpoint, Idaho, and we stayed for a long weekend. And we went for a bike ride one day. We went for a hike the next day and we went kayaking the next day. And he knows, and I know that I was going to come home and I was going to spend the next day in bed. So, I mean, there are those times where like, I'm sure, have you heard of the, read, read that? I think her name was Christine Miserando, the writer with the spoon theory. I have not. Oh, well, you and your listeners should go Google this. It's, it's the spoon theory. She had a different chronic illness, but it was the notion, you know, that, Everybody, you know, from the most healthy teenager to somebody who's debilitated with an illness, we each have a certain amount of energy. And the way she envisioned it was spoonfuls of sugar. So my son and everyone has to figure out how many spoons they have. So, you know, my son, Andrew, might have 50 spoons a day. I might have five. Right. And you need to figure out what's my energy capacity and how do I want to spend it? And I thought, I thought that was brilliant. What she, what she put together and she, she's, she put it forward much more articulately than I did. And it's, it's easy to find on the internet. All right. And, and we'll put a link in the show notes. I, it's not too much different than what I look at, which is I don't play video games, but my son certainly did. And you start out as you're, and, you know, fighting and you've got a lifeline up there, right? And every time the bad guy hits you, you lose a little bit more of that lifeline. And then when, when you lose your entire lifeline, the game is over. Um, and so I look at it, I start every day with this lifeline. 
And everything I do is subtracting from that just a little bit. And then at some point it's over. I was doing yard work this weekend. Same, yeah. and I was amazed that I was, I was being so productive. I was raking some leaves left over from last winter and I mowed the lawn and I washed and waxed the car. And I kept thinking, man, it's like my lifeline is just, it's just not diminishing today. And I walked in the house and it was like, boom, <laughs> I was just done. And I said to my yes. wife, and my son was coming over for dinner. I said, I need a, I need a 15 minute nap or I'm not going to make it through the night. And I just went from full blast to a sleep. And so, but uh, that's the same thing with the spoon. Theory, it sounds right? like the same thing. Exactly. The same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Holy cow. So and I think an advantage, it sounds like that you have and that I have is having people in your life that understand that. Yeah. And that's what would break my heart on the blog. I get comments from people with different illnesses, you know, saying, oh, my family thinks I'm a faker, right? They, they think I, I, you know, they, they don't, they don't look sick, right? So, you know, you just must be lazy. And so I think it's a sense of blessing for lack of a better word that you have a wife and I have a husband, I have a son that understands that when I come in and I say, I need to take a nap, you know, that that's, that's not laziness. Right. And that's, uh, and as a high achieving person, you have to convince yourself it's not laziness. Oh yeah. That's the first, that's the first person you've got to convince. That, and that is very tough. I want to ask you if you have ever asked yourself, why me? I mean, here you are up until sarcoidosis strikes. You, you are an elite athlete. You're, I mean, you were at a training camp with Lance Armstrong. Yeah. Right. And you go to, you're, you're at Berkeley. So obviously, you know, you, you've got some uh, academic game. <laughs> you don't just walk in into Berkeley, you, you know, so you're, you're smart, you're athletic, you're doing all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, bang, do you ask yourself, why me? I used to a lot. I used yeah. to. Constantly, I used to, you know, and then I would go back and I would try to figure out, well, what, because, you know, the current, or I don't know if it's current anymore, but at the time, the thinking was with sarcoidosis that you had a genetic predisposition to the disease, and then there was some kind of exposure that would happen, whether it was a toxin or a virus or something that would set off the disease. And I would go back and I would think, you know, well, was it because I like went to high school and Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and the shadow of the oil refineries. Was it that time that I went to flea spray the yard in California and instead I flea sprayed myself so I was covered in insecticide? And I honestly think what helped me deal with that end of it was getting treatment at the cancer treatment center. You know, where you see people from seven-year-olds to 97-year-olds who have an illness you know, why? I don't know. You know, why are some people born into poverty? You know, why are some people, you know, I, I just think for me, I've had to embrace the randomness of the universe, you know, and that spending a lot of time thinking, you know, poor me, why did this happen to me? It's just not helpful for me. I I have to say I agree, but I also think 
that healthy people should be able to dodge some of the pitfalls that not healthy people have. And you're doing everything right. And it still gets you. And that, that, to me, that that because I was kind of, I, I'm, I'm not as high achieving as you, but it just felt like, you know, I'm living a clean life. I'm, leave, I'm living a good life. I, I'm not abusing my body and, and I'm fit and I'm running marathons and all of a sudden, boom. And it just seemed like I was the most unlikely person. To me, it seemed that way. No, I felt that way too. But then you, if you spend time in the illness, in any kind of illness community, you see that there's so many people like that. And you have to, like, for me, I just remember, like, you know, for cancer and who knows what it's like with sarcoidosis. You know, hopefully the FSR researchers, the researchers that FSR is funding are going to figure this out. But, you know, it's one random mutation in a cell, right? It's so, yeah, we're setting ourselves up for success, eating our five servings of veggies and getting our exercise and getting a good night's sleep. But. You know, and I know some people derive a lot of, um, and I don't mean to to uh, to denigrate that when I talk about the randomness of the universe. I know faith is very important for some people, and I, I don't mean to, to, you know, to to speak like you know, like that 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 isn't a way to think about it. Like for me. I don't believe that any kind of God or, or, you know, any kind of force made me sick for a reason, but I do think there is so much that we can learn from illness that we can learn from hardship that can make us better people that can make us more compassionate and more empathetic. Um, and, and that's, I think where I try to focus on the, like the why me, I don't know, but what am I going to do with it? You, you've, you've mentioned already that illness uh, is a metaphor, which is uh, a book. Um, but you also, in one of your emails to me before we began talking today, talked about the history and the need for a metaphor. What was that all about? Well, I'm no expert on this. I'm just starting to do some reading and some research. Um, but, you know, as I'm sure you know, when we're in elementary school and high school, we learn a metaphor is a literary device that we use as a comparison. So you're busy as a bee or you're a solid oak tree, right? So it's this comparison. There's been a lot of research, I think, starting in the 80s that metaphors are not just, you know, a way to compare something in a piece of writing but that what a metaphor does is it takes an abstraction like illness, like poverty, like drug use, and it connects it with something concrete, war, so that our brains actually process information and can do that higher level of abstraction by using an internal metaphor. So by comparing, you know, illness to something else, we take that abstraction and, and we can make sense of it, if that makes any sense. And, and, that, and that's part of our brain's sure. wiring that evolved over time and that allows us to have these higher conceptual ideas. And so then we, then we say, all right, I'm going to fight sarcoidosis and I'm at war with sarcoidosis. And that's, that's a way of helping us understand 
And but maybe we're jumping to the metaphor that's just too easy. Is that well? Is that certainly, kind of like landed? I said, like I I said, it's certainly a metaphor. It's certainly a way of thinking that conveys all-out effort. It conveys intensity, and it conveys high stakes. And I think it's a metaphor that's floating around out there in our society, right? You know, we have the war on drugs. We had the war on poverty. I think it was Reagan or I don't know, the war on cancer, right? So I think, and I don't think it's just for people that have illness. I think it's the broader society uses these metaphors and finds comfort and finds a way to think about them as well. So what's next for you? Will we see you popping up in the Washington Post again or Huff Post, or are you still putting stuff out there? Yeah, um, I've been, I don't want to get put into a niche of only writing about COVID and how hard it is to live with COVID when you're immunocompromised. So I have an essay I've working, I'm working on about um, um, returning to the bike in middle age um, and sort of the, you know, the joys like I was talking about. Um, I have an essay that I'm working on about just this topic about, you know, how do we think about illness as a society? And, you know, what are the, the benefits of sort of the ways we think about it now? And, and what are the, the pitfalls of it um, that I'm hoping to, to send around? Um, you know, with writing, it's just a process if you send things out and you get rejected and then you send them back out. So hopefully you'll see me out there again soon. Well, I certainly wish you all the best, and, and I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this philosophical approach to sarcoidosis and, uh, and uh, how much I, I appreciate you being willing to share your story with the oh, listeners. Thank you, and thank you. I'm just honored to have you on. It's, it's such a great thing that you're doing, and it's um, thank you. Thank you for having me. Remember, Rebecca is an advocate and avid volunteer for the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research, along with me and many others, but she wanted me to be sure to tell you that all of the opinions expressed are her own and not those of FSR. And I would add the same for myself as well. But can you imagine being told by your doctor you probably wouldn't leave, live to see your son grow up? Can you imagine moving out of your home to be safe during the pandemic? I've heard of people kind of staying in their rooms or keeping distant or wearing masks, but moving out of your home uh, at, on your doctor's orders, uh, that had to be so difficult. And then think of the loss that she must have felt going from a world-class athlete to bedridden, and then as she writes in, in some of her um, essays, missing years of her life dealing with sarcoidosis. So, and, and then she just talked a little bit about how sarcoidosis prepared her for the difficulty of the pandemic. So yes, she was at more at risk, but she also already kind of knew how to deal with this kind of difficulty. So, And then what do you make of her argument that we're not fighting sarcoidosis? We are not warriors. We are simply living with our bodies, which happen to have a flaw for an unknown reason, and she can chalk it up to the randomness of the universe. I'd really 
like to see some comments on this. And I, I think that's a, it's a wonderful perspective. It's not my perspective. I feel like I have to battle it. I feel like everything I do is, is in some way trying to get ahead of whatever sarcoidosis wants to do to me. And in, in my thinking, that's a battle. But um, I'm not saying she's wrong. And I really appreciate her perspective. It's a new way to think about it. And I just want to know what you think. So if you want to leave me a comment on it, and if I get a bunch of comments, I'll be sharing them in a future Sark Fighter podcast. And then, of course, we want to thank Rebecca for all her work with the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research and for her ability to so eloquently spread the word to the rest of the world about sarcoidosis and for her continuing to do so. Now, if you're new to sarcoidosis, trying to figure out what you have, what's going on in your body, go back and listen to episode two, my interview with Dr. Simon Hart, and he basically goes over sarcoidosis 101, tells you everything about sarcoidosis, the best that we know about uh, what's causing it, what is the why there's no cure, what's happening to your body, why it can invade any part of your body. All of that is back in episode two. And if you want to know more about me and my backstory, it's in episode one. I'll tell you a recent release uh, is an interview with Leo Casimo, who heads up Sarcoidosis UK. And if you're listening in the UK, uh, man, I'm so happy to have you aboard. But if you're looking for answers about what's going on in the UK, check out episode 38. And then I'm just coming off two episodes featuring some of the top sarcoidosis researchers in the world. And if you are looking for hope, check out episodes 39 and 40 with Dr. William Damsky of Yale University and Dr. Matt Baker of Stanford both making promising inroads and studies of new ways to beat the effects of sarcoidosis, creating medicines and treatments that, if they get all the way through, could be on-label and specifically targeting sarcoidosis, which, as I speak right now, almost every drug that anybody takes for sarcoidosis, even the common ones like methotrexate, are off-label. In other words, they're not drugs that were developed specifically for sarcoidosis. And everybody knows that when you get to some of the more expensive drugs, the insurance companies throw up as many walls as they can. Uh, they don't approve it until your doctor writes n- numerous appeals and, and then you, you get the medicine typically, usually, uh, although I just talked with somebody who's been on the, on the podcast recently um, who needs Remicade and his insurance company change, and now he's going four months without Remicade because his insurance company, his new insurance company, won't approve it because it's what the, they refer to as being off-label. So um, the fact that doctors um, Baker uh, and Damsky are making progress, as well as Atire and some other companies that we've talked about, are making progress with sarcoidosis-specific treatments, that which will be quote-unquote on-label if they're all approved, is, is just amazing. So uh, you, you're going to want to go back and listen to those. And I will say that all of these doctors, even though they are their expertise is beyond this world, they did a great job of keeping the conversation in layman's terms and um, 
And I think you'll want to go back and listen to those. Uh, Please also don't forget to go back and listen to the bonus episodes on sarcoidosis and COVID and also a special one on sarcoidosis and prednisone and just how hazardous it is to take prednisone, even though it is the very first thing that doctors recommend. It It is still the best treatment for sarcoidosis for the short term. Uh, but anyway, there was a whole town hall on that, and uh, I moderated those. That those are back there. Those so those are listed as bonus episodes, and their opportunities as all the right people came together in the room at one time, and, and you can uh, you can figure out what's going on with that. Also, if you ever want to send me an email, it's in the show notes, carlinagency at gmail.com. You can follow the Sark Fighter with the word the in front of it on Instagram and also Sark Fighter on Facebook. I have a Facebook page and I post updates and uh, hopefully some interesting insights, things like Rebecca's uh, op-eds. I have links to those in there and I've done that over time. I appreciate your interest in the Sark Fighter podcast. It just helps me reach more people, and grow the show. And if you would share it on your social media, it's much appreciated. And if you like the podcast, please tell just one person. And if you would like, give the show a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again to Rebecca Stanfill for joining me here today and for sharing her insight and her perspective. And let's hope that she continues to write and to share the message and spread the message of what we're all dealing with with sarcoidosis. Until next time, keep fighting. Learn to suffer, you feel pain someday. Learn endurance, your strength will fade away. Dead man walking, trying to keep up the pace. Dead